Then I went to that PKMJ and we did civilian nuclear work. So we were making updates and augmenting designs at nuclear power plants, mostly in the US, some in Canada, some globally. And then from there, I went to a place called Bettis Laboratory here in the Pittsburgh area where they do the nuclear reactors for the Navy, so submarines and aircraft carriers. And I was in their simulation training group, so we created simulators to train the sailors on. Tell me your story. Tell me your story. How did it all start, do you remember? Oh, I know what happened. How did it stop? You're now tuned into the Small Business Origins Podcast. I love an origin story. Each week, we dive into the real stories of entrepreneurs and businesses from across the nation. Who is he and what's his origin story? Who started with just an idea and are now making waves. I told you this was a good idea. This is Small Business Origins. Yeah, what up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Small Business Origins. I'm your host, as always, John Kelly, a.k.a. John the Marketer on Instagram and TikTok. You're joining us on our nationwide search as we're looking for entrepreneurs that have a story to tell. And joining us virtually in the studio from Pittsburgh, we have an entrepreneur that wants to do just that. I've got Andrew Zimmer. He's with Zimmer Law Firm. Andrew, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks so much for having me, John, today. Appreciate it. I think it's going to be a fun discussion. Oh, yeah. It always is. Every single episode. I love it. I love meeting new people. I love the fact that when we were the Beef Podcast, we had a really strong local following. And I, and I, I wanted to do that for a reason. I love Tomball. I love where I'm from. I love Texas. But we really knew that we wanted to make this thing nationwide. And it's so awesome that I have over 150 requests to be on the show and I'm connecting with people from all across the country and telling stories that I just never thought that I would get to meet or know. And it's exciting. So I'm so happy to have you on the show. I'm so excited for it. But before we hop into the good stuff, we always start out with an icebreaker question here. And today's icebreaker question is pretty serious, man. It's uh, which do you prefer, popcorn or M&M's? Ooh, I'm going to go with M&M's, especially uh, the peanut M&M's. I would say that is kind of my my candy of choice, especially if you know we're pulling this into a movie. Yeah, dude, you can't go wrong with M&M's, man. And I'm not going to lie. I was going to judge you hardcore if you said popcorn. I would have never told you that, though. But, you know, <laughs> M&M's, it's like you're right. You get the best of both worlds. You can have the peanuts for like that nice, you right? know, fill you up type feeling whenever you're eating them. And then the M&M's, I mean, candy coated chocolate just. It's amazing, but I'm going to cheat here and I'm going to say both. Have you ever mixed the two? Ooh, like in the same big bowl. Oh yeah. hundred percent. You may have changed my life. I'm going to oh, have to go man. Little, like a theater in our, our basement. And um, so you know, I might have to go fire up Top Gun 2 or something tonight and try it out now. <laughs> See, these are the exciting things that we do on small business origins, you know, all joking aside though. I mean, I don't know. Is this like a regional thing or is this uh, something that everybody in the world knows about? I guess you've never heard of popcorns and M&Ms together, but it is life-changing. It's so good. And then especially if you put the M&Ms in while the popcorn's hot, then it kind of melts the candy coating a little bit and that gets on your popcorn flavors of popcorn. Oh, it's, it's amazing. If you can't tell, I'm kind of fat. Do you still <laughs> do you do butter? Or oh, not? definitely. So yeah. Bad. Butter. That's one of those, like when you're at the movie theater, you just keep pumping and pumping and pumping yeah. until basically you run out of butter in that tub that they have. And, uh, 
you know, then you go ask for more butter. Like, I, I don't think there's enough butter for your popcorn. Oh my gosh, this sounds so good. Okay, I'm definitely going to try it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that I ate breakfast today for once in my life, because if not, I'd be starving right now. And I think my video producer is giving me the signal that he's hungry and I need to shut up talking about food because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're all big around here, man. We have snacks and stuff in the fridge and the cabinet because we got to have our snacks on hand. But yeah, man, you got to mix the popcorn and M&Ms. If you haven't done it, do it and then email me later tonight and tell me how good it was. Love it. <laughs> all right. Well, Andrew, we're here to talk about you, man. Tell us your origin story. Where'd you come from? How'd you get into entrepreneurship? The whole thing. Yeah. Awesome. So I go way back. I'm from the Pittsburgh area and growing up through school and things, I was really into math and science. And so I had to go to college for electrical engineering. And I think that whole time, no one in my family is an entrepreneur. And for whatever reason, I always really admired the people that were. Every time I met a small business owner, whether it was the the contractor in town or knowing somebody owned the car dealership, it was just always like, wow, that's really neat. Like they've created their own job, their own little micro world. And that's neat to me. So fast forward through college and I go to Northrop Grumman, which is a huge defense contractor, like, I don't know, 100,000 employees. And so it's you know one end of that spectrum. In my next job, I moved back to Pittsburgh. And at the time, it was this little company called PKMJ. It was owned by um, Paul Tobin and his family out of Moon Township, which is a suburb here in Pittsburgh. And it was, when I was there, maybe 150 people. And so I got to get to know Paul, the family, the people that reported directly to him because it was small. And I was just enamored with what they had created. His dad had started this business like 30 years before with three or four people. And then his son took over and got it to, you know, 50 and then 100 and 150. And then while I was there, they ultimately sold it to Rolls-Royce, like the jet engine side for engineering services. And it was like, wow, like these people really did it. And they're like normal folks. And so that was always in me and I saw it. And then during that time is when I met my wife and she was an attorney and kind of always said, I might want to get into having my own firm one day. And that kind of just sort of meshed up with like, well, I don't, I don't know what that would look like, but that would be really cool because I think entrepreneurs are just a really cool breed. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a heck of a story, man. Selling to Rolls Royce and having that as your inspiration. So you studied engineering in college. What kind of engineering were you looking for? Electrical. And so, you know, my background was then a lot of department of defense world. So my first role was essentially designing and maintaining spy satellites. So we were flying satellites for different agencies that would collect intelligence, especially during global war and terror. Then I went to that PKMJ and we did civilian nuclear work. So we were making updates and augmenting designs at nuclear power plants, mostly in the US, some in Canada, some globally. And then from there, I went to a place called Bettis Laboratory here in the Pittsburgh area where they do the nuclear reactors for the Navy. So submarines and aircraft carriers. And I was in their simulation training group. So we created simulators to train the sailors on. And so that was my kind of engineering world and background where I learned you know, how to manage people, work with folks, project management, a lot in the actual engineering design. But that really came back to problem solving, critical thinking, and just you know tackling problems new and different ways, which really butted up against running a firm as that kind of evolved and started to take shape. Man, how interesting was that working on those kind of projects? It was fun. You know, I could pitch it here and be like, that was the coolest work ever. But there's a lot of days where you're just kind of punching away in a spreadsheet and they're neat projects, but they go so, so, so long that the last simulator project I, I worked on at Bettis 
it had started before I came in. I was there you know, five years, worked on it five years, delivered it to the Navy. It was probably in seven or eight year development course. And so there's just, it's slow. It's a great mission. What you get to do in all those roles is unbelievable. It makes you feel great. And I love that. But the day-to-day kind of could leave you maybe wanting something more, at least maybe as an entrepreneur, it was just kind of like too many sign-offs and paperwork. And you know, it's like, let's solve the problem, not see how we can try to stop it along the way. Yeah. I mean, that seems like government, right? You know, a whole (laughs) lot of things have to move in order to just get to one problem being solved. And I I think that's probably something that we all struggle with when we're entrepreneurs is it's like, I have this entrepreneurial spirit and that entrepreneurship allows me to be the decision maker that gets to say, you know what, I'm cutting out the red tape and we're just going to do this now. So just do it. And you don't get that when you're in, even when you're in the private sector working along with government programs, it's like, you still don't get that. There's so much red tape that goes behind it. I don't think people realize that. I was actually going to make a joke about, you know, a little sarcastic, like, oh, it sounds like engineering was boring and you needed to get out of it. But then that's the thought I had in my mind. I was like, well, it's like the FBI, right? You know, we romanticize the FBI and we see them like kicking down doors and arresting people and everything else. And it's like, well, you didn't see the two and a half years of paperwork that went in behind that, looking at bank records and analyzing their habits before they got to go kick the door down one time. You nailed it. Like that is the perfect analogy. You know, I I did satellites. We designed them, tested them, put them on top of, uh, I think they were a, a Delta heavy rocket back when they were using their own, shot it into space, turned it on and used it. Yeah, the day of launch and it actually not blown up on the launch pad. Yeah. Everybody cheers champagne at the end of that day. That was four years of twenty-four hour, you know, testing and Ugh. working shifts and yeah, and it's mundane things like does this thing work at this temperature? What happens at this temperature? What happens here? What about when we put it in a vacuum? Like, oh my gosh, this stuff is neat, it's important, but I'm not gonna act like that's super sexy. There's these elements and moments that are, and you go, like you said, years and years to get there. Yeah. That wasn't for me. No, it makes sense. So how did you and the wife meet? We met on Match.com back in 2011. So I'd moved back, took that job at PKMJ in that nuclear role. She was in law school, met online, you know, date went well, started dating from there. And then um, we got engaged a year later, married a year after that. And she graduated and kind of rest was history from that point. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to one up you here, but I've also got a romantic story of how my wife and I met. And I don't know how many people in our lives actually know this because it's something that we've just we're not ashamed of it, you know, but it's just not something we go out sharing. But uh, MySpace.com, man, that was it. Yeah, I was 17 years old. She was uh, a while ago. (laughs) Yeah, oh, it was definitely a while ago. I was 17. She was 15 or 16. She was a sophomore in high school. I was a senior. And uh, just one of those things, man, I came across this this photo of this person that I should add as a friend, according to MySpace. And I was like, man, she has some really pretty eyes. Like, I like her eyes. I'm going to hit her up and just slide into the DMs back before people were sliding into DMs and uh, just see how this works out. And her first thing was, man, this guy's creepy as hell. How old is this dude? You know, and then uh, for some reason, just a dumb kid like we both were. She uh, took a chance and thank God, because then. You know, enter the picture 16, 17 years later, here we are, three kids and a house and vehicles and a job and everything else. But man, it was it was MySpace back then. That was the the hookup site for me. That's too cool. I saw this interview with Gary Vaynerchuk 
couple of weeks ago, and I don't know if this was an old clip or not, but he was talking about, you know, buying different things and, you know, he's in trading cards and he said, there's a piece of him that wants to buy and bring back my space from a pure nostalgia factor Mm -hmm. of like recreate profiles and let people like just of our generation, like get back in there, relive a little bit of like what we did back to see it. What were we all thinking? And I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, yeah, that would be kind of cool to like go back and see it. (laughs) I mean, the big thing too, is I imagine like if they could go back and cash all the photos and the text and blogs and everything else that we had on our pages and restore them to some point. I think that would be a huge draw. I would definitely be one. I I hate to admit this, but I would probably pay to get back on MySpace. Like that's how much I loved. I didn't want to switch to Facebook when everyone made the big switch and they were like, Hey, we're going to go to this Facebook. I swear to God, it was like Twitter to me. I like Twitter now for the aspect I'm using it, but for what I was using it for back then and most of my life, I hated Twitter because it was just plain. It was just text. There's nothing fancy about it. And it was like, you know, now I see the draw to that because it's real world news in a faster time. So I love using it for stuff like my podcast, connecting to other podcasters, that kind of thing. But I loved the fact that on MySpace, I could have my song play. I could have a nice background. I could design all these things. I mean, we were web developers back then. Let's not even circle around this. We were truly doing web development and coding. And uh, I loved all the customization that you could put into it. And then they're like, well, we got to go to this Facebook. And I saw this white wall with blue and black text. And I was like, dude, it looks too plain. Yeah. I don't like it. Why Why would we want to go to Facebook? Like, this is trash. But then all of my friends did and, and MySpace was just dead. So I was like, well, I got to go there or else, you know, I guess that FOMO fear missing out, man. Like everybody switched. Right. So I got to follow them over there like a a sheep. <laughs> Man, now that you say that though, how much did you have? What were they like? GeoCities, GeoSites, um, Angel Fire, like all those oh, websites yeah. where you build for free and then learn HTML and then get into to builders and then go back in more and more HTML. And it was yep. like we, we built this stuff and looked for use cases. And we're just kids in middle school and high school having fun. And you realize like, those are really good skills to learn and have. Oh, absolutely. It came out of just stuff for fun as kids. Yeah. Cause I mean, I use those sites just like you said, but then I realized if I wanted to make one small tweak, I didn't need to copy everything back over and go through the whole rigmarole of getting it all fixed again. I realized, Hey, in this little text thread, I can see where it is, you know, with whatever command function that's in there and then a description of that command. And so I was like, all right, cool. So I started deleting stuff, adding stuff, and realizing, mm-hmm. hey, I could make this work for me even without having to go to one of those sites. But uh, I wasn't cool. I wasn't the best at it. But, man, I definitely had a, a great page. And uh, yeah, top like eight, it. man, you know, you had to have that that number one spot in that top eight was coveted. Yeah. But I know that's we digressed. Right. But when you start bringing up wow. MySpace, I can't help but do that. <laughs> but that's awesome. So you and the wife meet on match. And she was already an attorney at that time. So she was getting ready to go into her third year law school. And so then, yeah, we dated kind of through her third year and then she graduated, took the bar and then was practicing about when we got engaged. Okay. And yeah. And she was in hustle mode, build relationships, build a book of business, get out there. And so, you know, we joke now, like we definitely set time aside and had, you know, date nights and a lot of fun, but there was a lot of nights too, that she was out working till six, seven, eight o'clock at night, you know, networking events, grabbing drinks with people. At the time that could be frustrating. I was in engineering where. I was kind of done and went home. The government stuff, you weren't allowed to bring it home. It had to be at these secure facilities. So like when I'm done, I'm done. It was like, my gosh, all you do is bring your work home. But that's what allowed to build this. 
was all of the relationships that she put together for all of those years with a little bit of results, a little bit more, a little bit more, right? And it's that compound effect then of after four, five, six, seven years, it's just exploded to now what we've been able to do with this firm. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate with that, man. I mean, I, I take my work home all the time and constantly working and you're right, and, you know, networking events and stuff, just trying to get yourself set up because I'm in transition between working for the government and working private party and being an entrepreneur and trying to get it to where my entrepreneur life pays for everything. Cause we've already skipped ahead. We were okay with the jobs, you know, so we skipped ahead. We have kids and everything else. So I'm not in that place where I can just say, you know what, I'm just going to quit everything that brings me a steady paycheck and retirement and benefits. And I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. You know, I, I can't do that without like a $5 million loan where I know I can pay myself, you know, a hundred K a year and my wife 100k a year for at least a couple of years while I spend the rest on the company. And uh, yeah, I'm not comfortable with that kind of a loan anyway. So I don't want to get started yeah. that way. So I just want to yes. build it up slowly till we get yeah. there and then take that leap, man. But I love it, you know, that that just was the vision. And then you executed on that. So just tell me kind of that, you know, what your exit was from working your own jobs for someone to jumping into yeah. yourself. Yep. So, you know, so let's fast forward, I guess, to kind of tail end of 2016. And she's working at a firm in the Pittsburgh area. I'm at this Bettis laboratory. And we're both starting to have that, like, someday we'll change. Someday we're going to do something different. I don't love this, but at some point we're going to mix it up. And she came home January 10th, 2017. Goes, I'm starting my own business. I'm, I'm, just, I'm done. I'm not working for these folks anymore. It's over. I'm just not doing it. I said, okay. Like, she's not messing around. So, you know, kind of slept on it and said, well, like, what do we have to do to figure out how to start this? Like, what's really involved with starting a business? So mapped it out for the next couple of weeks at night, put a plan in place of a drop dead start date, March, I think 7th. That was the first day that she came to the law firm. She'd quit her job, transitioned her clients over and was, it was, you know, kind of a one woman show. It was her. And during that, I was just trying to be helpful, supportive and said, you know, hey, I can build a website. I'm not a web developer, but I know more than you do. And it's going to keep costs down on day one when we're we're bootstrapping it. And then I went, well, you know, I guess I could learn QuickBooks. I guess I could learn some accounting. Let's look at forecasting. Let's look at which tools to use and data storage. And so I tried to, I started taking that on so she could practice law. And it was really cool. I just pulled up some of these pictures a couple days ago. We did like a strategy meeting. We rented a conference room that we didn't have in like May of 2017 and saw where we were at, projecting where we wanted to go, what would be some big growth steps. And we had a five-year plan that I would leave engineering and come in full-time. What it would take, like where, what kind of money would be coming in in the firm, like what would absorb my salary, like when it would happen. So we get to like December, like Christmas 2017, January 2018. And she goes, we're never going to hit those numbers unless you're here already. Like we have to bet on ourselves. We, I'm betting on you. This is not going to happen even in five years, but if you come in, it's going to happen right now. And I'm like, I make a lot of money. I've got good benefits and this is way sooner than I expected. And so she said, here's the deal. Like I'm hiring your replacement or you can come in full time because I want to grow this thing and we're doing it together. What do you say? Like, I, I believe in us. So, okay. All right. It's time to, you know, really kind of nut up and, 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 we're going to do it. And so I went in middle of January to my boss, handed him a six week notice said, you know, we'll transition and get my replacement and do that. He shook my hand and was like, I knew this was coming. Just didn't know when and walked out of there the first, the last time on March 15th, 2018. And 
into, into the here in the law firm for full time instead of working nights and weekends on the firm. And we blew up. We doubled revenue that year from the year before. We went from having to, you know, have a plan like you talked. We had savings and how long is this going to last and how do we bleed off of it and kind of what's this transition look like? And we did that for like two or three months. And then it was like, my gosh, we're making more money than we ever even thought we could make. And this is just blowing up and never looked back. And now I look back and go, I can't believe I delayed or had hesitation or maybe didn't believe in myself. But you know, I've always had that imposter syndrome and self-limiting beliefs that I've really worked hard to defeat. But in that moment, that was really like a pivotal moment of you can either have that life that you hate, but it's safe, or you can take risks and kind of live and die by your own sword. And I'm so glad that I went to that with Aunt Tracy, but that's a hard decision to make. Yeah, I try not to be super negative about things either and, and be optimistic about it. But I think that there is some realistic expectation there that, you know, you can't predict the future. And I mean, just as as well as it was in how y'all got the income you wanted and you were doing the things you wanted and even better than you had ever imagined, you know, unfortunately, on the flip side of that coin, it, it could have been much worse. It could have gone the other way and nothing particularly about what you were doing or what you did back then. It could have just not worked out. I mean, there's so many circumstances out there. So I think it's a realistic hesitation. But you're right. I mean, I've had that conversation here where it's like, you know, if you would just quit everything and come here and focus more of your time here, imagine how much we could make. And it's like, I'm not saying you're wrong. It's just it's too uncomfortable at this position in my life, you know, so it's a it's a hard decision to make. Yeah. And I've definitely sat there. And I think what I've learned now kind of looking back is these these two concepts. The first one is. When we fail or things don't go according to plan, it's not usually catastrophic. Like worst case would have been having to go back to my boss and say, hey, we've screwed this up. Can I come back? Or go back to engineering. We weren't going to be homeless and destitute unless we truly were just too arrogant to say, I failed. Yeah. And then I also kind of tie that in with, and it's, you know, if you go, well, we could become billionaires. You know, well, that's also not very likely. You know, you're going to be somewhere kind of in this in-between of like, it could not go well, it could go well, but you're going to be kind of balanced. And I think that ties in too with people typically that I meet overestimate what they can accomplish in like an hour, in a day, in a week, even in a year. And then when they don't get those results, they're like, oh, see, it doesn't work. Oh, look, I didn't get all this done the next two weeks. <laughs> but they completely underestimate what they could do in five years, 10 years, you know, and they go, well, we could never get there. Are you kidding me? In eight years of effort, you could do dang near anything. And that's where I think people, you know, it's kind of that recalibration of, Smart risk, understand the the contingencies and what could and couldn't happen, and then taking some steps forward. Yeah, I think I get overwhelmed from like the ADHD side of I'm a very analytical person. So I feel like you're probably smiling right now because you 100% agree with this. And that's exactly what I was thinking was. So I know that you have had those thoughts in your head before you swapped over of like, okay, well, if we do succeed and we are making this much, then it creates these new problems. And then we have to deal with those problems this way. And then if we do fail, then it creates these issues. And then I have to do and you just start thinking about every single possible outcome. And then at some point you're like, all right, well, I've got at least 750,000 of those outcomes now out of the million that exist. Uh, Let me reanalyze all 750,000 and think about it from other perspectives, you know, and like, that's how my brain works. And then honestly, it probably just, it seems like a lazy maneuver, but 
it just comes down to like, I don't want to think about it anymore. I want to shut my brain off and it's easier to just, you know, for some people, I mean, luckily I, I thoroughly enjoy my job. And honestly, that's the hardest part for me too, is that I'm not just, I'm not getting out of hell. Like some people, like she probably felt like at that firm, when she came to that conclusion, nothing against them, but she probably felt a little bit like, I feel like I'm in hell myself. Because I'm constantly doing this one thing or she didn't like something that was occurring over and over again. I love my job, you know, so it's like that's just another factor that goes into it. So it's easier sometimes to just say, you know what, I don't want to think about it anymore. I'll just keep doing status quo. And if it works out, it works out. And then I'll just step into it. But it's definitely something we need to defeat. Yeah, we're cut from that same cloth of overanalyze. And I live in spreadsheets, especially then, you know, it was everything mapped it out, the exact consequences, days and months and times when we would run out of money. And if we make this much more, then it goes further, but we still run out here. I mean, I'd mapped all of that out. And Tracy's like way more like a good impulsive, like I've got a good gut feel on this, like we're winners, we're going to win. Let's just do it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, like you said, there's like a million possibilities yeah, and a ton of them are negative. I don't think you understand. She's like, we're good. Let's just trust us. Since then, I've definitely got better now at making decisions with like 70, 80% of the information and just saying, what's my criteria? What would make me say yes? What would make me say no? Kind of get to a point, make the decision and move on. And I've learned my gut feel is pretty good. Like, you know, with some information, I don't just willy nilly make stuff up. And so I I've been able to make decisions much, much faster now in the past couple of years, because I can do this, you know, analysis by you know, paralysis and just lock myself into a state of, I don't know, we could just go through this forever. And like you said, it's easier to just ignore it or just kind of keep, well, let's just, let's check one more time. Let's change the variables just a little bit. Let's see what happens. All of a sudden, like six months, nothing's changed. So I've really worked to get out of that mode because that's definitely a default state for me. Yeah. Do you think it's just maybe trusting that you're so good at analyzing it that you can come up with a gut reaction pretty quickly and that you're normally right? Like you just got to trust yourself in that. I think that's a lot of it is, you know, learning to trust yourself. It, It doesn't help that like, I think that's innately how I am. And then I worked all these places that were very like, you were, I was paid to come up with a definite answer and especially in the government, and we will pay you for a long time to come up with a really, really, really tight, good answer, defend it, double check it, triple check it, yep. prove it. And when you move into entrepreneurial space, if you take that long, you miss the opportunity. Yeah. And so that's been a pivot for me, but you know, yeah, my, that was why I was a good engineer. That's why I did well there. When they said, Hey, you've got six months to analyze this one thing. We want a definite answer in six months. I excelled at that. And that made me comfortable. This has made me uncomfortable when you go, what's the answer? And you've got 35 minutes figured out. Yeah. And you're not going to figure it out because you don't know the answer because anything could change in entrepreneurship at any moment. So you're going to take the information you have, use the track record and jump in. And what I've, what I've learned now is it's not going to go according to plan, but it never does. Being able to then pivot and say, okay, well, now that we took a step or two in and I now showcase these new details. How do we make an adjustment and being able to kind of move on the fly and be more adaptable to me is a better skill set now. Yeah. I think I told you this before we started recording, you know, I, I plan and over plan and try and make this podcast as good as I can. And it never goes how it's supposed to for good or bad. You know, sometimes better happens, sometimes worse happens. Uh, I mean, even the good stuff, man. So yeah, I can definitely feel that. So what type of law is she practicing? Industry-wise, estates and trusts. But really what we do is we help put plans in place for families to know what's going to happen. 
when they pass away? You know, how are they protecting their kids? Who's going to raise their kids? How do they, you know, pass, you know, money and assets to that next generation? And then the other half of the practice is then kind of the receiving end of that. We'll work with families when they lose loved ones to carry out all the steps needed for that inheritance and to the beneficiaries and taxes and everything that needs to happen. And that's the that's what we've, you know, we've built here. And that's what she's honed over her career. And it's it's an awesome set of practice areas because at a high level, basically everybody needs it, right? You're not working with Fortune 100 businesses on litigation saying, you know, hey, we only work with Coca-Cola or something. Most people need a will or powers of attorney. Everyone's going to die and you have to deal with something at some point. So it's really nice because you can kind of pick and choose. We like to work with, you know, middle-class Americans to kind of upper class. And so, you know, that's the clientele. That's our fees are based around, but you still come to, you've got these giant pools of clients you can work with and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So are y'all limited to just the Pittsburgh area or where could she practice? Yeah. So she is licensed in Pennsylvania and Ohio. So we can work across both states. Pre-COVID, it was pretty much just the Pittsburgh area because everybody really said, I'm going to come in. I have to be able to drive in. And we'd always offered video and virtual and ways to work with people kind of outside the area. And really just back then, 2018, 19, folks didn't want to take you up on it. Well, now that everyone got used to forced to use Zoom for every single meeting, some people actually said, I prefer, I don't have to travel now, right? I can work with folks further away. And so that has helped us really expand more across Pennsylvania and now into Ohio. So again, we have very few things that we ever have to meet someone in person for. And usually even then there's ways around it. So if someone just says, oh my gosh, you guys are great. You're four hours away. Hey, let's still do work together. Again, it's going to be a great quality product. You won't have to get off your sofa. I think that's a win-win. Yeah. No, I can definitely relate to that, man. I'm I'm one that I love being able to knock out certain things over a video call. But then again, at the same time, there are certain things that you just don't want to do that with. And I think that law may fall into that where it's like, I want to meet you in person, know who you are at least once and know who you are. And then the rest of it, yeah, we'll knock out over a video call for sure. And we see both. And I would say partially generational, but partially it's just this, that. I mean, I talked to a lot of folks who go, you, you have your pick come in or virtual, it's whatever you want. It's like 50-50. Some folks are like, I'm just busy, slammed. Can we hop on a Zoom? That'd be great. And the other half, it's exactly what you said. I at least want to come in once, shake hands, sit across the table and just face-to-face. And then after that, we'll probably do all phone calls. Yeah. And again, you know, it's good. We've had people drive five, six hours before for a face-to-face. Like we've heard great things about you. We are definitely working with you. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you're going to drive across the state for this meeting. Like you do not have to do it. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm old school. That's what we're going to do. Like there's, there's no issue with it, but just, you don't have to. (laughs) Yeah. I respect that. So what is your ideal client that you're looking for? I know middle to upper class, obviously, and it's everybody because we're all going to die. But like, I guess, let me rephrase that and say, what do you think the best time is for me to start thinking about end of life and these types of decisions? Typically what we we see is people kind of bucket in and, and typically need to handle it a few times. And so People get married, especially once they have kids. Typically, a lot of those folks come in and we put a plan in place because they have concerns over who would raise their kids and what happens with their assets, how do they pass to their kids. So we typically see kind of a pulse up once folks have their first child. That plan, you know, things can always change, but generally then they want to readdress it as those kids are in their 20s or 30s, maybe married. They know who the in-laws are. They know if they have grandkids or not. And coupled with that, then they're coming into retirement age. They're either pre or post retirement. And then that turns into this like next uptick of typically when people come in because, hey, you are 60 to 70 years old. 
things happen. You probably also maybe acquired some wealth. Like you're kind of set with like where you're going to be, but you're not necessarily where you were at 28. And so then it's new concerns, new issues um, that they want to address. And then a lot of times there's kind of a final one, maybe after the first spouse passes away or you know, you're widowed and it's, hey, you know, I'm likely to pass away in the next two, three, four, five years. And I want to make sure that this is set up with exactly what's going to happen because being honest, you're just on a trajectory. We all pass away, you know, again, at 30, odds are in your favor. You're not going to at 87, it's happening. Like, you know, and so those people then kind of really want to put a plan in place and know exactly what's happening. It's a bit more handholding. And those are kind of typically the three kind of buckets that we, we typically see. Gotcha. What does it look like after like, let's say for my child or my spouse, what, what does the process kind of look like right after I were to pass away? So, you know, and that's where we really come in and the attorneys here do such an awesome job is that in most states, there should be no work involved if one person passes away That's when they're married. If so, those are problems that can be avoided. And so that's where we get involved is putting a plan in place, but also making sure that, hey, if one person passes, there's nothing to do but just kind of keep moving, grieve, and that but from a legal perspective to not have any work. It's a real shame when it happens. And every once in a while, we have a client where they come in, the spouse passes away, and they go, you know, we've heard, you know, typically there's nothing to do. Let's, can we verify it? You start going through, like, you guys are going to end up with a $15,000 legal bill to keep things that are te- technically yours because you guys hadn't worked with someone like us five years ago. And that's painful. And that's a hard that's a hard one to tell somebody on a consultation when they're wanting to be told, you're good. And you start coming into it with like, you're going to need to come in because this is starting to go down an ugly path. And that's avoidable, but you have to work with, you know, a state planning attorney to put a plan in place and verify how assets are set up and titled to make sure this stuff's going to pass correctly. And that's a lot of what we do. Yeah. I mean, that's, I just saw something, a video on TikTok, I think last night. And it was a mortician, but she's also like, I guess, ME or, you know, whatever. It, I know states work differently, so I don't know where she's from or what her title is, exactly what she does. But she was talking to someone that was kind of involved in all this with someone that had recently passed away. And that's what she was saying. The lady kept saying, well, this is, you know, I'm, I'm his wife. And uh, so I'm the next of kin. And uh, she was telling the the doctor that was, you know, the pathologist that was doing the autopsy and everything else. Like I need this to be listed as an accidental death. And they're like, well, that's weird. Why would you even be thinking about that right now? And it comes out that uh, basically she was trying to collect on the life insurance policy and the life insurance policy was just an accidental death and disability policy, not natural causes. So it wasn't like true life insurance. And she's trying to collect on this. And then not only were they going through this battle of like, well, we're not going to list it as accidental because he didn't hit his head. There was no blunt force trauma. It was just, you know, he died of natural causes and then come to find out, they said, well, you're not even his wife. You're his girlfriend. So next of kin is his daughter. Yes. And she's like, well, wait, it's common law. And they're like, well, (laughs) common law doesn't exist in this state. And you know, I'm from Texas. So I never even thought about that. Like in Texas, you live together a couple of years, especially if you have kids or anything else, you're married. You got to get divorced if you want to split up like you're married, but there it's not. So it was like, not only are we not listing it as accidental death, even if we did, you wouldn't get the insurance. And now you can't even make any decisions on his behalf because you're just a girlfriend. And so I guess the lesson here is from what you're saying and from you know these videos I'm watching and everything else, it's like you may think you're all squared away. And in some cases you may be, but it doesn't hurt to spend a little to find out 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt you're good. 
versus having to spend a lot to defend it later. You, you've nailed it. That's exactly it. And, and that's the kind of scenarios where people get kind of can get busted. It's the, well, we were engaged. Well, fiance is not wife or, or husband. So that's, that's just a thing society calls <laughs> the step before you get married, you know, or we, we work with a lot of families that are blended families. So second, third marriages where they each have kids, maybe kids together, kids from previous marriages. Well, they have a lot of options for how they want things to flow, what they do or don't want to happen. It takes a good bit of planning though, to make that all happen. So it's you, they come on in again, the legal team here will work them through all the options, what they can do. And a lot of times they didn't know they could do, you know, have, they want certain assets to go to this kid, some to go here, some to be for the spouse until the spouse passes, all kinds of cool things they can do. And that's for them to figure out with that attorney. But if they just kind of wing it, more times than not, they screw it up and it was completely avoidable. And then they come in and they go, you know, it goes from maybe, a, you know, then that point, I don't know, us just taking a peek at something or a thousand or $2,000 of legal work to, you know, turns into add a zero to a 10 or 20,000. You go, you could have been avoided, but you had to work with us previously or someone else. And that's just, that's the shame of it. Yeah. It's a lot more work now trying to fight Time. an uphill battle versus, you know, getting it all squared away while you're at the top of the hill. Yeah. Like what you said too, with like, or it goes to the people you didn't intend. You know, you know yeah. there's a will. You're saying who you want things to go to. When not, like you said, you start getting into this world where you're married or not. Spouses have different protections and kids in different states and all that. And you start going. If there was nothing written down, documented, however it needs to be for that state, those laws are going to control who inherits. And it's there's no well, dad wanted this. No one ever cares at that point. It's what was you know legally documented or not. And those are hard hard talks that we have is when someone calls me as well. He he. he you know, he wanted it to go to me to have it, or it's supposed to go to me and my sister. Well, that's not what's going to happen now. Yeah. If it's not written down, it didn't happen. That's something we live by in the fire and EMS world. So now progressing that. So let's say that it is, you know, me or my wife, that's the last surviving partner. And it's just our kids, no matter how old they are, just our kids are the ones that are involved. What does that process look like? You know, after that last surviving parent passes, what are you doing for those kids? How are you reaching out to them? And, and what are kind of some of the processes around that? Yeah. And I will preface with all states handle this differently, but kind of generally, typically we tell families uh, best, you know, one of the best things you can do is communicate because you don't know what's going to happen. And if we've watched anything crazy in the news the past six or 12 months is that there's all kinds of folks passing away at ages where I didn't really expect and pro athletes and all kinds of things. So going every day is a gift. Tomorrow is not a guarantee. Well, tell your kids, hey, you know, mom and dad, we, we've got a will. We keep it here. We worked with this firm. They could help you. If something happens to us, here's some documents. Here's a binder with all of our you know, bank account statements. And that way you know what's there. You know, It's so hard when somebody calls us and goes, you know, dad passed away. Do you have any clue what assets he had? Nope. You never told us. <laughs> I'd start going through that. Like it's, it's freaking hard where if they're very upfront and communicate with like, hey, here's a binder. You know, here's your folder with all this information you're going to need. They can just go through and go, great, I understand what's here. And so those proactive families that communicate and just, again, can be adult of like, this is not a fun topic, but we're all going to pass away. I'm going to pass away. So here's what to do to make this less terrible. That is so much easier. So then they get lined up with, you know, an us or somebody like us to then carry through whatever legal steps are needed in that state. But at least you've taken away the guesswork of like, I don't know if mom and dad had a retirement account or not. I don't know. How would we figure that out? Like kind of, it's like do that work for them ahead of time because it is hard. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's a a hard lesson to learn. It's something I learned with my mom where she was young, she was 50 and it was like, Hey, we've got to talk about 
end of life stuff. And it was always for me, just, it's not something I want to talk about. So I just want to shove it off to another day. Like, yeah, we'll get there eventually, but you're going to live. You got time. I'm not worried about it until that time came where it, that was it. Her number was up and it was a total shock, a total surprise. And we were not ready at all. I mean, like we, even knowing that she was on full term disability, even knowing that, um, she had severe medical issues. It just wasn't something that was comfortable to talk about. And then in the end, it wound up being detrimental to us. So like, well, if you would have been prepared for this, then things would have gone a lot smoother. So, yeah, it's definitely a hard lesson to learn after the fact. If anybody can tell you it's me, talk about it now and have that conversation now. Yeah. And, and we really take a, an approach that we put a lot of effort into writing our documents where they always stand up. They're legally sound. But when we can, where we have the flexibility, we really try to write things to be more easily understood. We take a lot of pride that our clients can usually read their documents and go, I don't have a lot of questions because this makes sense, which I think helps them then be able to speak to the family about it. Again, we're going to walk them through what everything means, but I want them five years later to be able to still sit down with the kids or whomever it's going to be and say, this is what's here. This is what it means. This is what's going to happen. This is how to do it. Instead of them just saying, I don't know. We trust the Zimmer Law Firm. I hope it's right. No, I want I want them to be empowered to say, I, I really understand what's here. This is what my wishes were, and this is how it says it, why it says it. I think that's such a better solution for families. Yeah, I agree. So if we're in Pennsylvania or we're in Ohio, we can give you a call. We can check out your website, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I want you to share all that stuff too, but also tell us where I can find you and connect with you. Maybe even if I'm not in one of those states, but I can still support you and then learn from you, you know, yeah. those kind of things. Yeah, I'm super active on Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok. It's just Andrew Zimmer. And so, and, and in there, I, I do share a lot of information, both about these topics, but also for other attorneys who maybe want to start their own business or kind of launch things or how to scale. You know, we've done that very successfully, kind of from the business perspective. And so, I kind of have just a passion on helping other business owners or folks that are, hey, I'm at a law firm and it's hard to pull the trigger and leave or, how do I go get that first 100,000 clients or kind of make this more sustainable? I like working with those people too. So I have a lot of content out there then on that front as well for other legal professionals that maybe either want to get going or make it bigger once they get going. Heck yeah. No, that's really awesome. Now, I know you've got you know just common spelling on Zimmer there on the last name. So if you would give us the proper spelling of your name so people can find you on LinkedIn. And then, of course, yeah. the website and phone number, if you're comfortable sharing that, any information yeah. you want to get to kind of connect with you on a client level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then so the last name is Zimmer, Z-I-H-M-E-R. And so then it's Zimmer Law, Z-I-H-M-E-R-L-E-W. Dot com. Our phone number is 412-223-2525. You know, folks call in. Typically, they're going to talk to you know Susie, our amazing administrative assistant. She handles, you know, kind of everybody calling in and then gets them either scheduled up for a consult or if there's something she can just help them with or point them to and just kind of does a, a great job up front on kind of an initial touch point to help folks. That way, then if you know they say, I am more interested in this, we do a complimentary consultation for you know 15, 20, 25 minutes to understand a what are your concerns? What are, you know, what do you or not have already in place and just kind of where are you at with things and try to help them kind of know what some of their options might be, what some costs might look like. And then if they want to take next steps so they can work with an attorney and, and get this put in place. Awesome. Well, Andrew, thank you for coming on the show today and sharing all this, man. I think we all probably learned something good here. And I got to tell you, the conversation was great. It's been an amazing conversation with you. I love chatting about all the things we were chatting about. So 
definitely got to keep that conversation going. Absolutely. This has been a great day. I really appreciate coming on today. Absolutely. And listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Small Business Origins. Please make sure every single week you're listening to our new guest that has something to tell you about their business, their personal life, where they came from and how they got there. We're on that nationwide search and we want you to give us other people that you have to have on this show, people that we need to hear from with interesting stories, just like Andrew and his wife, Tracy. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm glad you tuned in for it. And as always, stay beefy, my friends. Thanks for listening to another episode of Small Business Origins. I love an origin story. If you like what you just heard, leave us a review, subscribe, and share with a friend. You guys, check this out. They're going to love it. You're going to love it.